Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. Did anyone melt this week? Looks like you're good. Still all put together. I hear this week's not going to get any better. So, uh, Wear less clothing or something like that. I don't know. Uh, Let me say welcome to Church 307, to the guys over at the prison, to our friends at the jail, and those of you who are here in the room. We are in a series right now called First John because we are walking through the book of First John, and there's this really weird twist that happens in the passage that we get to today that talks about the Antichrist. Anybody heard of the Antichrist? Uh, I grew up in a church that talked about the Antichrist all the time. Like way too much we talked about the Antichrist. As a result, we were all terrified all the time. And we just guessed, we speculated about everybody that might be the Antichrist. And, oh, this president is the Antichrist. Or this musician is the Antichrist. Or that actor, or whoever it is, whoever happened to say something we disagreed with, just happened to be perfectly aligned with the Bible's predictions of what the Antichrist would be, and then we'd wait a little bit and realize, okay, never mind, they weren't the Antichrist. Uh, But just so you know, my idea of who the Antichrist was for most of my life came from these books called Left Behind. Anybody heard of the Left Behind books? Uh, They also made movies after these books. Nicolas Cage uh, was the main character in the most recent movie and and they predicted this these books and movies predicted who the antichrist would be or what he would look like and they they kind of like harmonized a bunch of bible passages and smashed them together and came up with one storyline of who the antichrist would be and what he would do and so as a result when we get to a passage like the passage we're going to read today in first john that talks about the antichrist it is very difficult for us to just read what it has to say without any other preconceived notions of who the Antichrist is and just take it at face value. What does it say? Because actually, the passage we're about to read is the only passage in 1 John, is the only book, and a little bit in 2 John, that talks about the Antichrist. And you're going you're gonna to read it and you're going to think, wait, how did we come up with such an extravagant storyline about who the Antichrist would be from that. We have way more beliefs about the Antichrist than what this book teaches us about the Antichrist. Where do we come up with all the other stuff? Because when we let our imaginations run wild and we add in all this other stuff, what it usually leads to is fear. If I think about something scary too often, it leads me to live in a state of fear and I end up seeing the potential for that scary thing to happen everywhere. We grew up seeing antichrists around every corner. That was just how we lived our lives. We, our nightmares had the antichrist and the antichrist had this nice black suit and a black tie and a red shirt. Every antichrist nightmare I had, that was him, right? Well, where do we get this image? I don't know. from somewhere else other than the Antichrist passage we're about to read today. Because what does fear lead us to? 
not to a healthy place. There is a reason why the Bible says, do not fear 365 times. One for every day. There's a reason. Because fear is not going to lead you to a healthy place. Run from it. In fact, it's totally, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, there is no reason to fear. Because fear leads us to bunkering. We, we, we separate ourselves from anybody who might have any kind of bad intentions. We store up, we separate, we divide ourselves from the rest of the world because we are living in fear. Now, if theology leads us to this place, but it's true theology, that's one thing. But if our theology leads us to this place, but it's false theology, then we are just doing exactly the opposite of what 1 John is about to d- tell us to do. So let's dive in, and I'm going to go back in the passage to kind of set up where we're going, and also just because this passage is absolutely awesome, I didn't want to leave this stuff out. So it goes like this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. John says, I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know, like you have a relationship with Christ who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith. Why? Because you have won your battle with the evil one. How awesome is that passage? I had to include this verse. It says, when you are young in the faith, you have already won your battle with the evil one. Right at the beginning. It's not like I got to be good. I got to continue on with some other commands or do some other things or get baptized or get some gift of the spirit or something else. Right there, I am young, I'm a new believer, and I have already won my battle with the evil one. And then maturing in the faith and all that other stuff comes later as a consequence, as a result of that victory. Then he says, I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. You know, Scripture often differentiates between people who are mature in faith and people who are young in the faith. The Christian church doesn't do this too much because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but here's the truth. The Bible talks about rewards for those who do what the Bible commands. There is a maturing process. When you are saved, you are not as mature as you will be at the end of your life. Why? Because the sanctifying process that God leads us through to mature us. And what's the evidence of that maturity? The fruit, the result, is sacrifice. It's service. The mature believers are those who have built into their schedule intentional times to sacrifice for others, to volunteer, to give away their time. Mature believers have worked into their financial practices, into their budget, sacrificial giving. That's what maturity in the faith looks like. This is who he's talking about. He's like, there's young and there's mature. Which one are you? He's going, he's going to go on and talk about what it looks like to, to be mature in the faith. He says, do not love this world, nor the things that it offers. For when you love the world, 
you do not have the love of the Father in you. That doesn't mean the Father doesn't love you. It's just like his love for you hasn't permeated yet. It hasn't changed you yet. That molding process hasn't completed yet. And the evidence of that lack of maturity is following the desires of the flesh. It's getting what you want when you want it. You know, there will be times in Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, when you will read something and you will think, wait, that doesn't make sense. It's telling me to do something that I don't think I should have to do. Or it's telling me I should not do something that I think I should do. And what our opinion is will not line up with what Scripture says. And maturity teaches us that even when I don't understand, I'm going to follow anyway. Because I know my desires are tainted. My my desires are influenced by the moralities of this world, or I should say the immoralities of this world. My desires are messed up because of my sinful, because of the flesh that I live in. So as a result, I don't trust my opinion. I don't trust my desires. I don't get what I want. Instead, I follow I trust, I believe his way is best. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see, the things that we can touch. And why does it say only physical pleasure? Because it's telling you physical pleasure will only lead you to depression. If you live your life in pursuit of physical pleasure or in in pursuit of getting possessions or achievements, if you pursue those things, it will lead you only to pain and to depression. We crave that, but it's not what we should have. It will lead us to pride in our achievements and possessions. And these things are not from the Father, but are from this world. You know, the world has taken this so far that it has begun to identify people by their cravings, by their desires. Your desires aren't only something that you have, they are something that you are. If I want it, I should have it. If I feel it, it must be true. That's why we call it my truth. We ask questions like, how could a loving God possibly keep me from my desires? It is precisely because he is a loving God that he keeps you from your desires. For the same reason that I don't let my sons eat candy for breakfast. Why? Because I know better. I'm older than you. I'm wiser than you. Listen to me. Trust me. I know you think it's good, but it's not good. It will only lead to pain. This is what Jesus does for us. It's a gift to us. You should not get what you want. You should resist those desires. And you should follow him instead. And this world is fading away. Along with everything that people crave. But anyone, this is the key verse. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Don't do what pleases you. Don't do what feels good. 
do what pleases God. Put a smile on his face. Yesterday, uh, my sons and I did the door-to-door thing, putting door hangers out, advertising at the movies. Um, By the way, we still have some door hangers. If you want to participate in hanging doors or hangers on doors to advertise at the movies, we got some more in the lobby. You should grab some. One thing that I learned, hanging doors on people's, or hangers on people's doors is how many people still have their Christmas mats out. So if you still have your Christmas, Merry Christmas, welcome mat, you should change it. Just advice. Anyway, my sons and I are out there sweating and passing out all these flyers, and we finally get done. 200 flyers. We're all drenched in sweat, and we're tired, but like feeling like we achieved it. We did it, and my boys have sprinted the door because they were racing to see who could do more. It, it was a good time. And at the end of it, my oldest son, Lincoln, said, Dad, did we just make God happy? Yes, we did. Absolutely, we did. Like, what if in your life, sometimes you did things that he commanded us to do, just purely, not so I'm going to get something out of it, not so, not so that I can gain anything, just purely because I want to make God happy. I want to put a smile on his face, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do something just to make my heavenly father happy. That's what we're called. That's mature faith. He says, dear children. Here we get the little, the turn I was talking about. Dear children, the last hour is here. When is John writing this? Not last week. He was saying in his time, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, is coming. And already many such Antichrist, lowercase a, have appeared. So we got one individual and then we've got many other individuals like him. From this, we know that the last hour has come. The Antichrist is a topic that I get a lot of questions about. So I'd like to pause and just break it down a little bit. Just dive into this idea a little bit. And when you talk about the Antichrist, and when you have these conversations, usually among people who care about theology stuff, and they're going to get into argument because we all come to different conclusions. But there are three main passages that come up in these conversations. And so I'd like to break them down for you. The first one that you come across is in 1 Thessalonians. Paul talks to us about the man of lawlessness. Then the second one is from 1 John. This is the one we're reading today. It's the Antichrist. And then the third one is Revelation 13 that talks about the beast. And what the Left Behind series does, and what most Christians, not most theologians, but what most Christians do is they assume that these three people or these three entities are the same. But the Bible does not tell us that. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us that the Antichrist and the beast are the same person. In fact, I think the descriptions of those two individuals are very different descriptions, implying to me that they are not the same person. So I'm going to go quickly through, I'm going to try to do it quickly, go quickly through these three passages. And I want to start with the last one. We're going to start with the beast in Revelation 13. Now, you've read about the beast in other places, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 introduces this idea, this timeline of all these events that are going to come 
throughout history, a lot of people say, well, it must have been written uh, recently because it got history so incredibly accurately. And the kind of the climax of the story in Revelation, the timeline in, in Daniel, is this beast character, this evil beast. And if you just follow the timeline of Daniel, it leads you up to a time period right around the life of Christ. So if you just trust Daniel, you come to the conclusion that the beast is somebody who's going to come around the time of Christ. And that, in addition to many other things, has led me to the conclusion, to the belief, that the beast in Revelation 13 is somebody who was coming in their future when they were writing, but in our past. In other words, he's already come. We don't need to be watching for him anymore. He's already been here. In fact, I think I know who it is. Now, other people think it's somebody different. I, I'm quite positive. I don't think there's anybody who fulfills the prophecies of who the beast would be more than Nero or the kingdom, the, the Roman empire. See, Nero was an incredibly evil character. In fact, he did some things that I'd have to give a bunch of R-rating warnings if I even told you the stories. He's just a disgusting man. This, this is a guy who mocked God's creation as much as he possibly could. He killed his mom just because she did something that he didn't want her to do. He kicked his pregnant wife in her stomach, killing their child and his wife. And then afterwards, he decides that he's going to dress up his slave like his wife and pretend like his male slave is his wife. This is a guy that crucifies Peter upside down and beheads Paul. Like, this is an evil character. And one of the most famous things that we read about in Revelation that tells us about who the Antichrist, or sorry, who the beast will be, is that he will be uh, associated with the number 666. And you know this even in popular culture. If you see the number 666, well, that must be evil. That's because Revelation tells us that this number would be associated with the beast. Well, did you know that if you translate the name Nero to Hebrew, and then you, he, the Hebrew letters are also numbers, it's different than our language, and you add up the numbers in the name of Hero and you, Nero, and you get to 666. Now, that doesn't mean that he is the only one who fulfills many of the prophecies of the beast. There are many people like uh, Diocletian and Stalin and Pol Pot, like all throughout history, we've seen incredibly evil characters that are beast-like characters. But guess what happens every single time a beast is revealed? They are defeated. They lose. They die. They are overthrown. It happened. Nero died. It happened with all the other beasts that have ever risen up throughout history. So what should we do with the knowledge of these beasts? Fear not. In fact, here's what we should do with the knowledge. Did you know that every single time a beast rises up and persecutes Christians, it sparks Christian growth? There's a revival every single time. Shouldn't that give us a little bit of encouragement? A little bit of courage? And I'll say this for those of you who grew up like I did. The mark of the beast is not a microchip. It's not a tattoo. Revelation tells us 
that we are to get the mark of God on our forehead. When we read that passage, do we come to the conclusion that the mark of God is a microchip? The passage is here. It says, they were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Does that mean we're all going to go tattoo the numbers 777 on our foreheads? No. This is apocalyptic literature. It uses imagery. And in scripture, consistently, being marked is swearing allegiance. If I am marked by something, it has affected me, it has influenced me, it has changed me. And that's what it talks about to receive the mark of the beast. Don't follow him. If a beast arises, you don't just go along with him. You rebel against him. And her. It's choosing to follow or not to follow somebody. Okay, so that's the beast. Let's talk about the Antichrist now. 1 John 2 talks about the Antichrist. And remember, 1 John and a slight reference in 2 John are the only passages that talk about the Antichrist. And remember, he said there are many Antichrists, not just one. And who are they? Well, I think what John was talking about is the same type of people that Jesus was talking about when he talked about wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They pretend to be one of us. They come from amongst us, yet they mislead us. They claim, claim to be a Christian or somebody like us, at least somebody friendly to us. And then it turns out that they harm the Christian mission. Jesus said, I'm sorry, remember John said, the last hour is here. He didn't say it's coming. He's not talking about sometime in the future. He's prophesying events that are already happening in his lifetime. They're not just events that are going to happen in the future. Now, the fact that there are many such antichrists imply that that will continue, that these people will continue to rise up. And then he says this, you have heard that the antichrist is coming and already many such antichrists have appeared. I think what John is talking about here are people like Caligula. Caligula was a Roman emperor as well, and he kind of took a different tactic than Nero. And instead of fighting against it, he kind of tried to set himself up as a religious figure. In fact, he tried to put a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple so that he could be worshipped right alongside God. This is more like an antichrist figure pretends to be one of us, to participate. He says, from this we know that the last hour has come. It goes on to talk about the Antichrist and how they will try to lead Christians astray, but we should not be deceived by their lies. They are false prophets. Don't listen to their teachings. And then he says this, and who is one of these false teachers? And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, notice what he's doing here. He's not just saying every big false teacher. He's telling you what is the false teaching that they're going to teach. You know, a lot of times, every time we disagree with some, somebody's theology, we like to label them a false teacher or, a, or a, a one of these liars or one of these antichrists. That's what we try to do. No, he's not talking about just anybody we disagree with. 
He's like, there's some, there are some teachings that there can be no disagreement on. Here's what they are. Anybody who says that Jesus is not the Christ, that's kind of like our foundation. And then he says, anyone who denies the father and the son, don't deny them. Like that's the, Jesus is Lord. That's our foundation. Jesus is King. That's our foundation. We can disagree on a lot of other theology stuff, but not on that one. So who are the Antichrists? John is saying they're the liberal mainline denomination preachers who say that Jesus was not God. You've heard these people. Or they're the prosperity gospel preachers that say that we can become God or that we are God. And they take their theology so far that that we are Christ in their theology. Like those are dangerous theologies. When you hear them, run from them, speak out against them, fight against them. Those are antichrists, lowercase a. And then there's what Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Now, most Christians today assume that this is the beast in Revelation. I am almost entirely convinced that this is not the beast. Very different descriptions. And this seems to me that this is, unlike the beast, this is somebody in the future. Now, not everybody agrees with me on that one. Uh, If you'd like to, we're doing our Church 307 podcast tomorrow is on this. We're going to take a deeper dive into this. I'm going to sit down with my dad and Bill Nicholas, who we don't all agree on this stuff, and we're going to hash it out. And so if you'd like to tune in to our Church 307 podcast on YouTube tomorrow. It airs at 4 p.m., but you can go back and watch it at any time uh, and get a deeper dive into this. You are welcome to do, to do this. Now, I th- so let's talk about this man of lawlessness. Let's read the passage. It says, For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion. So John says, uh, already happening, end of time, or uh, the last days are here. He says, For that day will not come until... There is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. I don't see a great rebellion against God. When I look at history, actually, you've seen the opposite. Just relentless growth. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what the non-Christians do. It doesn't matter what attacks. Relentless growth. Christianity just keeps growing. And who's the man of lawlessness? He's the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Sounds a little bit like the Antichrist language, right? And it says, the man of lawlessness will sit in the temple. Well, here's a problem. 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Now there's a Muslim mosque there, right? So how is it going to sit in the temple? Well, who is the temple? We are the temple. Scripture is very clear. God no longer resides in the western wall of the temple. The temple is not in Jerusalem. The temple is right here. We are the temple. I think what it is trying to say here is that this guy will be one of us, or at least he'll claim to be one of us. He will claim to be a Christian. He will set himself up in authority in the church. He says, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly and it will remain secret 
until, so the, the spirit of the, this lawless man is already at work and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, I don't have time to dive into all what this says. Here's my educated guess about what this is saying. My guess is that the Holy Spirit today is restraining the man of lawlessness through the spreading of truth. It is the gospel. It is truth itself that is restraining the lies of the man of lawlessness. He can't convince anybody of his truth because the truth is being preached. Yet someday, it says, there will be a great falling away. And the preaching of the truth will be less prevalent. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will step out of the way and this man of lawlessness will be revealed, which could lead you to fear until you read the next verse. But the Lord Jesus will slay him. He'll be revealed just in time for the Lord Jesus to slay him with the breath of his mouth. He doesn't even need a sword. He doesn't need an army. With the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So, it seems to me that the man of lawlessness is either the Antichrist, capital A, or he is an Antichrist, lowercase a. And what does this passage tell us about him? It says, God is restraining today the man of lawlessness. In my opinion, the way that he is doing this is through the preaching of the good news. It's through the preaching of truth. As long as truth is winning, the lies can't be revealed. As long as Christianity is growing, and it does relentlessly, then this man of lawlessness is bound. But even when he is unbound, don't fear. Because what saves us? The return of Christ will rescue the world from the attacks of the Antichrist. You know, Jesus is coming back. Do, do you live your life knowing that Jesus is coming back? Do you live your life with the expectation that any moment could be the moment that Jesus comes back? Or are you living to satisfy the flesh? to pursue the world's desires that seem so appealing yet only lead to depression. I am a huge fan of the Gillette Mustangs, or I should say now the Wyoming Mustangs. Uh, go Mustangs. Any other Mustangs fans? Anybody? Yeah, a couple. Uh, you should become a Mustangs fan because they're awesome. Anyway, I uh, have done a lot of chaplain work with the Mustangs, mostly with the defensive players, a couple offensive players, and um, we do a Bible study every week, and sometimes right before the Bible study, their team meeting has gone a little bit long, so I get to sit in on their team meetings. And their defensive coordinator, their defensive coach, has this phrase that he always uses. And the first time I heard him say this phrase, chills ran down my spine. I wanted to jump up in the middle of their meeting and be like, yes it is! Like one of those like, Nobody else was getting it, but it all worked in my brain. This was the phrase. 
He said, defense is about trust. Now, what he was talking about is very true about their game plan. What he was saying is, if everybody trusts their teammates and everybody does their jobs, we win. We've got every lane covered. He's like, if I don't try to do your job and I trust you to do your job and you do your job, we win. Defense is about trust. I think the same thing is true about Christianity. I think if we all do our job, if we all trust, we win. If, if, we, if we stay in the lane that God called us to and not get distracted and not run off in all different directions, the man of lawlessness is restrained. He's powerless. And we win. So what's our job? Let's go back to the first John passage. World is fading away. Along with everything that people crave, all those distractions. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. My identity is not defined by my desires. My identity is defined by God. I am who he says I am, and I do what pleases him because he knows me better than I know me. You know, we have this habit of putting adjectives before the word Christian. We say, I am a conservative Christian, or I am a liberal Christian, or I am a white Christian, or I am a black Christian, or I am a charismatic Christian, or I am a gay Christian, or I am a straight Christian. Let's go back to English class. What do adjectives do to nouns? Adjectives modify nouns. Do we want our or inform nouns? Do we want our Christianness to be defined by or modified by or informed by our whiteness? We got white Jesus and we hold strong unto white Jesus. I bought a candle the other day from the Dollar Tree that had a white Jesus on the front of it. Like, that guy didn't exist, so. Or whatever modifier you put in front of it, what ends up happening is my Christian, the way I live out my faith is modified by me. But let me tell you something. My faith does not need more Mike in it. My faith needs more Jesus in it. Less of me, more of him. So what actually should happen is my Christianity should inform my, me. My Christianity should inform my conservativeness or my whiteness or whatever else you put in that adjective place. It all bows to the truth. It all bows to the capital T, truth. His truth, not mine. I follow him. I trust him. 
because the way we defeat the Antichrist is by following the true Christ, by staying true to the truth. If the truth is preached, he wins. In fact, usually he doesn't even need us. You got revivals breaking out in Muslim countries of people who've never heard the gospel before, and God's just coming to them in dreams and in visions. He's pretty good at what he does. He's going to win. So we trust him. He is looking for loyal soldiers who get to participate, who get to do their part, who get to celebrate the victory with him. Now, could that politician be an antichrist? Maybe. Could that preacher be an antichrist? Could somebody that you disagree with politically be an antichrist? It's possible. But how do we defeat them? It is not by sharing our opinions. It's not becoming more of who we are. It is becoming like Christ. It is standing strong on truth. What is the truth? Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's the truth. We stay relevant to that. We stay faithful to that. We have faith in that and that alone. Everything else it is, is a distraction. Everything else just gets in the way. Jesus is Lord. Because if you change a heart, if you get somebody to recognize that Jesus is Lord, he's got the rest. He will sanctify. His Holy Spirit will change. His Holy Spirit will convict. Jesus is Lord. That's the truest. Maybe there's somebody here today who has gotten distracted. You believe in Jesus, yet so many things that you want, there's desires you have, there's achievements you want to have, there's things you want to buy, and you've recognized in your life that they've taken precedent that those things have informed your Christianity. That your Christianity has taken a back seat to the things of this world. If you can identify something in your life, and every single one of us can, by the way, that has taken precedent over your faith in Christ, today is the day to crucify it, to kill it, so that you can more fully align yourself to the truth, you have to say no to the lies. You have to put behind you all those things that will not ever lead to any kind of fulfillment and pursue him more fully. God, I thank you today for your truth. Pray that you would give us focus on the foundation of who you are God, I pray that you would give us more and more strength, that you would mature us so that we could become the people that you originally created us to be, that you would renew our minds so that we could see things the way you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.